everyone and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me as always, my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I uh, haven't been so well uh, recently, but I'm still hanging on in there. How about you? I'm, I'm doing well too. You know, so, uh, the temperatures are starting to get hot here, but uh, I'm managing. Yes, yeah, uh, temperatures have been about 19 degrees in the UK. I'm not sure about America. Oh, 19 is nothing. Uh, we have, I mean, in the Celsius scale, it's uh, 36, 37, 38 even sometimes. Yeah, I have, my friends in Japan have been telling me it's been about 35, 37. Yeah, today's not too bad though. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're, we're recording this a bit later than usual, but uh, the episode shouldn't come out too late or too much later than it's supposed to be scheduled, so I think that's okay. Uh, and as for the episode itself, today we're talking about the 1997 Palme d'Or winner from Iran. A Taste of Cherry, written and directed by Abbas Kiarostami. But before that, uh, Jason, why don't you tell us what you've been watching or reading since last time we spoke? Well, uh, due to illness, I've had about um, four weeks off work. Um, and uh, initially, I had limited screen time. Um, but uh, I've uh, still been able to watch a few things, many reboots and adaptations of popular franchises, such as the latest Scream movie. Uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Did you say Did you say Scream? Yeah, Scream. Okay. Um, big horror film fan. Not a particular fan of the Scream franchise, however. Uh, it was uh, passively entertaining. Um, seeing sort of like metatextual aspects of horror movies, um, uh, dissected on screen, <laughs> and there's a lot about fan culture, which seems uh, very contemporary. Yeah. I've I've never seen the originals, but I know that that is a big uh, part of the first scary movie. Yeah, right? you've got you've got a couple of characters who are just going through all the rules of uh, horror movies, and then either breaking them or showing how um, um, like their scheme adheres to the rules. I see. I see. Don't go into the basement alone, sort of thing. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, Ghostbusters Afterlife, as a massive Ghostbusters fan, I was actually quite impressed. It was a fun tribute to the original, and uh, it also worked well as a reboot to the franchise, as it introduced a new cast of characters. I watched Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, sort of like a, a mashup of the first two Resident Evil games and Code Veronica. And I found it's like really efficiently written to set up a franchise. Um, I didn't really enjoy the characters though they are remixed so Wesker is totally different from the sort of um, cartoon villain uh, with the delicious accent that you would remember from the first game uh, he's more of a bro in uh, the so movie. So what, what platform is this? Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City is the recent Sony movie. Oh it's a movie okay I thought you meant uh, uh, it was a new game. No no uh, the most recent game is Resident Evil 8 released last year. Okay yeah, and uh, Leon's been turned into a, a clownish character. Um, like, he's uh, got a reputation in the video game world of, as being one of the coolest characters around, <laughs> with a leather jacket and everything, and cool 90s boy band here. Um, he's much more of a, a, a cartoon character uh, in the movie. Um, but what I did appreciate was like the horror aesthetic. I found it was really effective. And um, actually, the setting of Rust Belt America really gave it a strong atmosphere of decay. There used to be, I think, just a, a slightly related, I think Resident Evil franchise, they used to have spin-off games, right? 
Yeah, like Dead Aim. I don't know if they do anymore. I it's so far it's just the mainline series. Back in okay. the nineties and early two thousands, there were loads of spin off games uh, of varying quality. Yeah, but I don't know if you are familiar with a YouTube channel called the Angry Video Game Nerd. No, uh, no, no. He he makes fun of old games and uh he did that's how I know that there were spin-offs and a lot of some of them were bad because I think there's an episode where he makes fun of them. But anyway, please go on. Yeah. Um in terms of like uh Resident Evil uh or uh survival horror uh YouTube channels, Residents of Evil can be um uh entertaining. But also like I watched episodes one to six of series three of the boys. And um it's just uh fantastic satire of media, culture, um, politics and superhero world. And I, they figured out how to deal with the Homelander pro- problem by having Compound V and introducing Soldier Boy uh, in episode six and uh, it, for a fight. And it was just one of the most uh, thrilling fights I've seen uh, in uh, any form of media so far. Because Homelander's built up to be this impossible hero to beat, the Superman. And, yeah, uh, he is essentially Superman to the level of powers. Yeah, absolute narcissist, uh, all sorts of uh, mother issues, and um, yeah, he's come to the point where he can realize he could just, where he's realized he could just destroy everything, and now like the boys have a way of trying to stop him. So it's uh, um, episode seven's just been released. So I'm looking forward to watching that, and I think there are only eight episodes in the series, so we're coming close to the end. Uh, in terms of Netflix, uh, I watched Hellbound. I thought it started off as a great concept, like a religious disaster movie where people are sentenced to hell and these big gorilla-like monsters kill them. And I found like the initial setup with the monsters and the fiery entrance and uh, like the, the gore and the violence was a great hook. And the mystery as to what was going on was great. And then it became really leaden and dull as it sort of flash-forwarded into the future and showed how Korea changed as a society with this sort of like uh, religious cult trying to pull the strings of officialdom and people um, sort of living in fear of what's going on. Um, yeah, I don't think I was, uh, I don't think I'm that interested in episode, uh, any episodes of the second season, but I did write uh, briefly about it and I hope to publish something on my blog next week. I watched All of Us Are Dead, which I found a lot more entertaining, very quick paced and gory. Um, Emotionally manipulative, as we see children and teens hung out to dry by adults during a zombie. So, apocalypse. what is that? Is that a movie? Is that a series? Okay, so all of us are dead. It's probably like one of those big Korean breakout hits where a zombie apocalypse unfolds in a fictional city called Hyosan, and authorities lock the place down, and it takes place over a few days. And um, the main cast of characters are essentially a bunch of teens in high school, which is like ground zero. And you've got, you get a uh, sort of secondary cast of characters, the parents, the soldiers, the politicians who are all sort of, um, connected to the teens in some way or trying to contain the situation. And that, as I said, takes place over a few days. So you can suspend your disbelief as to like, uh, oh, why are characters making dumb decisions like this? Because they, you know, caught out essentially. And it actually does a great thing of having the characters get up to speed with what is going on very quickly, people are like, oh, this is a zombie apocalypse. Oh, I've seen Train to Busan, sort of thing. 
And then you've got all of these characters placed in different locations and we see them pinball between each other and like pockets of survivors turn on each other. And uh, yeah, there's uh, some social issues for the sake of melodrama, um, very gory, um, but a lot of fun. I raced through all 12 episodes. Yeah, I mean, the zombie subgenre has become very popular in Korean media for some reason. I mean, there's Train to Busan, there's all the sequels and spin-offs, there's that uh, period drama, uh, Kingdom or something. Yeah. Uh, there's this, I mean, there's, it seems to be very, for some reason, Koreans seem to be very taken with it. I can't think of any, oh, there's a uh, zombie for sale. And, um, oh, there's a, there's a Korean zombie movie on the YouTube website that the Korean Film Society runs. I can't remember its title, though. It escapes me. I mean, it doesn't now. matter, but it's, 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 a, it's become popular relatively quickly. I don't think even 10 years ago, there barely any and then it just i think around train when train to busan came out although no i don't i'm not saying that was the originator i don't know if it was but it seems that around that time like five years ago it's kind of seemed to became it seems that it became very popularized yeah um well it's like we discussed with um uh the quiet family it was kind of like horror was a massive genre before the quiet family came along like comedy horror especially and suddenly everybody started doing it. So I think Train to Busan had that sort of effect on the film industry. Uh, and what else? Uh, yeah, I watched Earthquake Bird. It's a really good psychological drama, um, unreliable narration. The sort of mid-budget film that a streamer like Netflix is good at making. And um, Alicia Vikander gives a really strong central performance. I, I like There are a couple of actresses like Alicia Vikander and Rebecca Hall were really great at presenting difficult confrontational characters uh, who are just like difficult to be around, but you want to dig into what's going on. And Earthquake Bird presents like a like a psychological a portrait of someone psychologically disturbed, and also sort of like a mystery as well. And the way the story goes is really thrilling. And uh, I also watched uh, some short films and posted reviews. Um, Swallow. Uh, by Mai Nakanishi, who I interviewed, um, Laundromat on the Corner, and I interviewed the director Tetsuki Ijichi, and also Summer Wedding, and I interviewed the director Azusa Hiede, and um, they're all available on my blog. And that was essentially my media consumption. All right. That's, uh, that was, yeah, it was still a pretty good list. As for myself, I di- I'm also watching the third season of The, of the Boys. I did watch episode, episode seven last night. How is it? Oh, it's pretty good. And it's going to, oh, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's going to, you know, reverse some of the things that happened in season, in episode six. Oh, okay. But I, I do agree that episode six is not only maybe the best episode of the series so far, but maybe one of the best episodes of television of any series that I've seen. It was just a masterpiece is just not enough praise for how good it was. Yeah. How they maneuvered every character into that final conversation. I mean, it's this is not exactly spoilers because nothing that will happen in episode seven is going to be a complete surprise. You sort of expect it, and you, it's been foreshadowed very, very obviously. But the certain revelations in in uh, in episode seven will kind of undo the massive high because episode six was sort of a victory, I think, for like all the what you said, you know, all the 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 homelander challenge. Yeah. 
and I think episode seven kind of puts a wrench into that. Although it's still very good. I mean, there's still uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, a lot of possible directions that it could take. But there's already some very very I think uh, good predictions that people have made on forums online. Okay. Uh, as to how how this is, well, I wasn't aware that it was an eight episode season. I I I, I had no idea. For some reason, I suspected it would be ten episodes. I, I I don't know, but I think all previous seasons have been eight, right? Yeah, I'm assuming it's an eight episode um, season because probably, episodes, probably. Uh, uh, seasons one and two have also been eight episodes each. Yeah. Uh. So yeah. So I'm probably you're probably right about that. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the fi- the finale if, uh, next week. Uh, as of as of the time that we're recording this today. So do you, uh, seasons one and two sort of wrap themselves up. Do you think? season three could end on a cliffhanger i think so I, uh, well i would not know i mean I, I do think there will be some i mean seasons one and two have you know wrapped themselves up but they also leave leave room for the story to continue and i think season three will probably do the same there's been some predictions about what those conclusions are and if those predictions are true or even partially true i think they the course of the season will be the same that there will be a sort of a if a, a conclusion to part of the story, like a solid yeah. conclusion, but also there'll be a lot of you know room for the season, the next season to go on. Okay, it's so frustrating because I'm you know I'm, I I don't follow many TV shows like you know some others that I watch I don't care as much, but this one is now we have to wait another year for for the next one to arrive, and that's just very frustrating. Yeah, agreed. Uh, well, in that sort of respect, I've all, I also started reading the boys' graphic novel, and I have to say, I, I I'm not enjoying it as much. Mm. I don't know if it's a matter of perspective because I'm so uh, used to the the TV series and I I enjoy the TV so much that even small differences are are kind of not appealing to me. But I don't know. It just feels, for one thing, there's a sort of a a a, a faint trace of homophobia that. I feel like it runs through the, perhaps intentional, perhaps unintentional, that runs through the com- the uh, the comic book, the the graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, but it, that, I mean, that's that's not the main reason. It's it, I just don't don't find it as appealing. I'm I'm about fifteen issues in, I think, right now, as of the time that we're recording this, and it just seems. I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but it's also very very different. Yeah, you can see, uh, like compared to Cowboy Bebop. Um, or even like Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, the writers and the boys have taken sort of like this playpen of ideas and just rearranged it into something much more efficient in terms of storytelling. Whereas the yeah. graphic novel is just chaotic. Yeah, there have been comments uh, online, and I partially agree with them, that the third season of The Boys is perhaps a little bit more on the nose. Okay. With its with its political commentary, and I I agree with that. I think it is, and I I don't like it so much for the reason that twenty years from now, a lot of the references that they're dropping will probably be lost on the audience. Yeah. Uh, and I think I I never think it's a good idea to date that show. I mean, I think it's good to make broad, well, not necessarily broad. You can make specific, but to to sort of tie them to something more universal than make make a specific reference to like say a sitting U.S. senator senator that barely anybody knows now, let alone. Uh, like 20 years from now or 30 years from now where, you know, people will look back at the show as an example. Yeah, the comic books have sort of like um, the George Bush, Dick Cheney paradigm. This one's yeah, like... Yeah, but that's that's different though. I mean, because that's... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 
Uh, okay. Anyway, so that's that's it for the boys. I'm also watching the third season of The Orville. That's another show. It's a Star Trek inspired science fiction show created by Seth MacFarlane, and um, that's I mean that's that's also decent. I don't I'm not I don't enjoy it as much as the boys, but it is a a nice show that sort of a uh, offers a nice alternative uh, to the modern to Star Trek. Hmm. Uh, to the current iterations of Star Trek. The last episode was especially good. I mean, I think the, the previous episodes were okay, but the last episodes were, were was pretty, pretty good. I, In addition to that, I watched the movies, uh, the two movies, The Incredible Shrinking Man and The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Okay, how was it? I didn't expect, I mean, I've seen The Incredible Shrinking Man before. I knew what to expect, but I didn't expect to enjoy The Incredible Shrinking Woman so much. Uh, it's It's a slightly more comedic take, although, I'd say seventy percent of the movie is a shot for shot remake. Mm. Uh, well, maybe not shot for shot, but it is a pretty, uh, pretty faithful remake. And then they take some liberties elsewhere. It's uh, it's more lighthearted, more comedic, uh, with a sort of a Deus Ex Machina happy ending. Uh, and it's not. I mean, there's so many flaws, but it is a, a, an enjoyable movie in its own way. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. Uh, I read a novel called Machinehood by S. B. Divya. It's about it's set about a hundred years in the future, and the humans are forced to take pills, so performance enhancing pills to compete with AI for various jobs. And it's uh, about sort of a, a, a cult that that demands human rights for machines, for AI, uh, etc. And I'm also I finished that a few days ago. Then I started reading another novel called Baltazar Baltazar and Blimunda by Jose Saramago, a Nobel winning prize Nobel Prize winning author. Uh, I've read this novel before, but I, I just wanted to revisit it because it's enjoyable. I'm listening to this one in audiobook. Yeah, uh, it's uh, Saramago writes very dense, so they're 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 very. If I if I read a Saramago, I've read most of his work actually, but they're very dense, far hard to follow. You have to take your time with them. So listening to it in audiobook form is uh, is makes it a little easier. He writes in a sort of a stream of consciousness uh, manner where he's just. The, all, all of it is long paragraphs. He doesn't separate speech from narration. He doesn't separate the characters. He doesn't use punctuation very well. It's just w- one giant paragraph where you kind of follow the story. James Joycean. Yes, yes, and not as bad though. Not not as I mean, it's still you can still sort of like tell the part through the style, but it's uh, he just uses when two characters speak, he just uses commas. And there's just you just one character speaks and then it's a comma and then the, the same sentence the other character speaks it's it's very but you you it's still surprisingly easy to follow along and especially if you're listening to an audiobook uh, where the uh, where with a competent reader then you can of course it becomes super easy because the reader kind of does all the work for you yeah uh, okay and I think that's it for my media consumption it was a a, a fruitful couple of weeks okay. Uh, so after after we're done with that, we have our news section. So uh, you have a couple of news items that you'd like to talk about, Jason? So we have a couple of festivals kicking off in July. We've got Making Waves, Navigators of Hong Kong Cinema, which is taking place in London. Uh, these are in-person screenings at Soho Hotel and the Garden Cinema. And titles include Anita, First Girl I Loved, and Hand-Rolled Cigarettes. Um, and also classics like... Uh, Comrades, almost a love story, and July Rhapsody. So uh, I've seen Anita, the first girl I loved, and hand rolled cigarette. I think you've seen them as well. Uh, I yes, yes, of course. And some of those are old, right? Some of them. I mean, the 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 some of them are older movies. 
yeah, Comrades Almost a Love Story and July Rhapsody, uh, two of the older ones that I mentioned. Um, July Rhapsody is by Anne Hui. And, uh, uh, yeah, so it's a great chance to see sort of like, uh, landmark titles in Hong Kong cinema, but also like really contemporary ones with Anita, the first guy I loved in Handwalt Cigarette. Uh, and there are also like special events such as like, a um, virtual, uh, Q and A's with the directors, um, talking. Uh, and yeah, so that's taking place from July 8th to 10th in London. We've also got the New York Asian Film Festival, which is July 15th to 31st. And this is going to be in person film at Lincoln Center. And uh, again, this one uh, has a range of titles from contemporary to classics. So we've got like old ones like Running on Karma and Happy Together and Kung Fu Hustle. Um, alongside uh, Angry Sun, um, Ribbon, uh, The Girl on the Bulldozer, and um, I think Wonder of a Summer Day based on some press materials. So if I, like uh, Angry Sun, Wonder of a Summer Day, and The Girl on the Bulldozer, we've talked about uh, in relation to Osaka Asian Film Festival. Uh, and uh, we both had good things to say about those films. Yeah. And I think we should point out, I mean, you said in person, but it's it's worth it to emphasize that it's in person only. Yeah. And I think I, I, I mean, sort of this is, uh, we talked about this many times and we discussed about the benefits, the pros and cons of, cons of both approaches. But I think I was, part of me was hoping that, you know, all these festivals after COVID would sort of retain the online component. Uh, now, now, there might be legal issues to, to legal, like challenges to distribution, but I just think they're doing themselves a giant disservice. Uh, by by sort of like limiting it to in person only because it is just I think I think I understand the traditions that they tried to up to upheld to uphold but I don't know I wish they they kept at least a component of it online yeah like the benefits for like indie directors to have their audiences go from a hundred to potentially a thousand based on the online screen especially at an age where the theatrical experience is diminished like you can't you can't hold on to pride in sort of like in today's uh in today's marketplace i mean I, again i i understand the reasons i understand the 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 sort of like the drive to to hold on to traditions but it just seems to me that that there's no downside i mean they can still keep the the attendance and i don't uh, I suppose you could make the argument that fewer people will attend the in-person screens, but I'm not sure because people will still go there for the, you know, for the extras, so-called the the director interviews and the and the all the the which I don't see them losing customers, in-person customers, by making at least part, if not the entire their entire library also available online. Yeah, it could only boost the content that they are curating essentially. It, Exactly. Uh, now, again, there might be, perhaps we're speaking out of film because there might be legal reasons why they can't distribute online. Maybe they they have to pay extra to get licenses, distribution distribution licenses. But I don't know. I feel like that's those are would be solvable problems if they tried. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Anyway. It's like you got East Coast Premier, West Coast Premier, so you can like have the film travel to different cities and create a big buzz around it. But again, you're cutting out a potential audience of thousands. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, audience and revenue. Yeah. Because, again, I mean, these festivals, it's not, nobody's getting rich from them. 
I don't think, especially there's these smaller festivals. I think in the in cities like London and New York, you're guaranteed、uh, a big audience for many of the films you screen. Oh yeah, I'm I'm not saying anybody. So there's a you kind of there's festivals that you know lose money that lose money in the sense they not lose money but lose money in the sense that someone is donating their time and money to make the festivals and they're not getting it back, right? So that's yeah, you, one category you, festival. You've got、yeah. festivals that run on subsidies and volunteer work. Exactly. There are festivals that sort of can maybe break even, and there are festivals that make a profit. Yeah.、Uh, and I think maybe the New York Asian Film Festival is either the second or the third category, but it,、uh, so it's guaranteed to break even at least, or it's maybe it's guaranteed to make some profit. But I don't think they're they're in a position where they can deny further profit or further funds. If if they have that if they have that opportunity, yeah. Like I, I can see, can sorry to interrupt you, but I can see can sort of making that case where they don't really need it. Maybe I don't know, but they because they're a giant festival that have major backing and and you know, really rich history where they maybe they can generate like a giant amount of profit and can sustain themselves throughout the way. But I think these smaller festivals, which I consider the New York Asian Film Festival to be, it's it's a big festival sort of in the Asian. Cinema community in the U.S., but it's still not a, not at the level of Cannes, of course, or Toronto, or any of the other ones. So I don't know. Anyways, please could say what you before I interrupted you. Well, no, a specialist festival, as opposed exactly, to, as opposed to sort of like a、uh, top liner like Cannes, and then you've got second tier festivals like Venice and Berlin. Well, I'd say I'd say Cannes. I'd say Cannes. Sorry to interrupt you again, but I'd say Cannes, Venice, and Berlin are both first. Are all three first tier. I yeah, Cannes is first tier on another level though. So like Perhaps, Venice, that, that might be that might be true. That might be true. Venice、uh, is probably the、uh, Venice and Berlin is are its closest competition. But yeah, every festival's wrestling with how to turn a profit in some way, and it's probably likely that in the future there will be much more acceptance of online screenings. It's like it at this point, it seems like people are just eager to go back to in-person screenings. Let's pretend the pandemic is over. Absolutely, but again, though that that's that was my point that it, they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, you could someone could make that argument, say, well, we don't want to jeopardize our in-person attendance by making it available online. But I don't think you would. I think there's still going to be a core audience that I don't think it's going to be reduced that much because people still are eager to do that. But I don't think you lose that by offering it, offering a portion of it online. And you know, you can make.、Uh, Like the bigger festivals, I don't know about if Cannes or Venice would ever do that, but I mean they could do something like partner with Netflix and make it available, make their selections available exclusive on Netflix, or maybe, you know, they could have an online phase where you do the main phase of the festival in person, and then like as soon as that the person phase ends, then there's immediately online phase, so you still give some advantage to the in person phase, ah,、uh, like so they get to see it first, but then immediately after. People can can pay extra to view it online for a limited time, and that so you can have the best of both worlds essentially. Yeah, there was the、um, I can't remember the full title. It was something like We Are World Festival, something like that, that、uh, occurred during the pandemic. It was like a team up of like major festivals, Tokyo,、um, Tribeca, and、uh, each festival contributed a selection of short films and a couple of features. That were all screened on YouTube, and they all got like you know, decent audiences of thousands. Of course, yeah, yeah. And they were all free to view, and it was kind of like 
you would be able to access like films that you would never normally be able to see. Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't was uh, I forget what was the last version of iteration of Japan Japan cuts because I think we have might we probably had the same conversation right I mean that that was almost a year ago because there's a Japan cuts coming up like a next a couple months right yeah because that's that's usually in the summer isn't it I won't say it was in person but hmm. I can't remember I the year before was definitely virtual yes yes because I I remember explicitly uh okay. Yeah, it, it was an online and in-person hybrid event. Okay. This was in August, end of August of 2021. So, and and that's, I think that's an okay compromise. I mean, obviously, ideally, we want everything online, but, yeah. you know, you know, it's, uh, I think, I think that's an acceptable compromise because again, there are licensing issues that maybe, maybe, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak out of term that maybe, uh, but anyway, I think, I think. I think we've spoken enough about this issue. We might, as a podcast, we might cover uh, New the New York Asian Film Festival. We haven't decided yet. Depends. I, I'm I'm a little busy this time of the the year, and you also have uh, other things that are keeping you busy as well. So uh, we don't know if that's going to happen, but we'll consider it. And maybe next episode will be about the New York Asian Film Festival. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Nothing, nothing promised so far. Uh, but unless anything else, unless you have anything else to add, Jason, I think that's probably it for our new segment. Uh, yep, that's it. Okay. So now we can jump right into our uh, main discussion of the 1997 Palme d'Or winner, another major award winner, as is the theme for us for this season. And that is Taste of Cherry, written and directed by Abbas Karastami, the first and maybe only Iranian film to win the Palme d'Or. Is that correct? Well, it's the first. I'm not sure if any others have won the Palme d'Or. I think for the Palme d'Or, and that may be the end, although we will fact-check ourselves eventually at some point, or someone else will. We'll see. Uh, but uh, Jason, as always, why don't you give us a brief uh, summary of the film? So, uh, the film follows a middle-aged man named Mr. Badi, who drives around the outskirts of Tehran in his Range Rover as he looks for someone to do a certain job for him. The job involves the person traveling to a grave he has dug and either rescuing him from it if he is alive or burying him if his suicide attempt is successful. Over the course of an afternoon, Mr. Badi meets a Kurdish soldier, an Afghan a seminarian, and an Azeri taxidermist, all of whom have reservations about his intentions, despite the promise of a large payment of money. And each person tries talking Mr. Badi out killing himself. All right. Uh, thank you for that a summary, Jason. Uh, so this was a first-time watch for both of us. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And I think I'm not speaking out of turn when I say that both of us have very little experience with Iranian cinema. I, I think this uh my second film by Kiarostami, but my first Iranian film. Okay, that's right. We talked about it last week. It is my first film by Kiarostami, but it is my second Iranian film. I did watch... A separation when it came out. Hmm. That is by Ashgar Avgadi, I think his name was, and he won the Oscar, the foreign language Oscar in 2011, and I think it won either Venice or Berlin top prize. I forget which one. Okay. Uh, so either either the Golden Lion or the Golden Bear, either way, a mammal. <laughs> uh, so so that's why. I, so it's so that's another Iranian film to have won a ma major award, but it wasn't the can. I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah. But so what? What did you think of this film as you watched it? What? So I'd like to ask you, what did you think? And then I'd like to 
ask you for later, not immediately, about comparisons with the 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 eel, which was also a a Palme d'Or winner in the same year, and we already have an episode about that, so we the listeners can listen to our thoughts about the eel uh, in in that episode. But I still would like to compare it with the taste of cherry, and kind of maybe maybe try to understand why it was picked the same year. Yeah, um, so uh, I reread my review of Certified Copy and a line from it stuck out to me. And it was like, uh, whether the film really goes anywhere or says anything is down to the audience. And I think that applies here because it's essentially a simple film uh, on the surface. Uh, You're watching a guy drive around the outskirts of Tehran and talk to three people um, about suicide attempt and um, it ends on an ambiguous note and it's left to the viewer to attribute meaning to what uh, happens in the film and um, you know uh, I think at the very least it's really good looking I think everybody can agree that um, that having everything take place in the vehicle and then the shots inside contrasting with shots outside makes very interesting visual storytelling. And the range of characters, um, the sort of uh, conversations that unfold, really pick up an interest as you go from one person to the next. And uh, yeah, uh, it was, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say it's a, a, a brilliant film, but it's a very well shot film. And um, yeah, uh, there's something to grapple with. Um, I don't know how much there is to it because, uh, yeah, it doesn't present massive moral quandaries that the director's trying to trying to examine. He just leaves it to the audience to decide. Yeah, and I think I would concur with with a lot of that. And I would say that next time someone asks you to define minimalism, you can just easily point them point them to this film, and that is a perfect definition of minimalism because it is. As you said, it is about Mr. Buddy trying to commit suicide, but we never learn why he wants that. We never learn anything about him, really, other than his name. And we can't even, we can't even like, uh, in, you know, extrapolate that he's unhappy. Like, there's not not enough information, and I think that's that's due to the style of his. And, and even in the visualist sense, it is very minimalist in that, like you said, it. It is mostly monochromatic, really. I mean, it's that deserty orange hue that dominates the film, and that kind of sort of is. Uh, hopefully, this doesn't sound bad, but it it matches with the skin color of many Middle Eastern people, right? It's that sort of like that that brownish deserty, uh, deserty color that is that makes the film almost monochromatic, which adds to the minimalism, uh, and um, and also the car as well. The car, that's right. E- everything, pretty much, and. Um, uh, and the ends ambiguously. Although I read multiple reviewers that I don't know where the sources, where the what the source for this are. That although it's it's a reasonable speculation, is that the ambiguous ending was primarily tacked on by Kiarostami to avoid censors because sort of Iran is a religious, uh, is an Islamic republic, so he significantly frowns upon suicide. Yeah. So so to end. To end with a more strong suggestion of suicide, who could have possibly banned this film or censored it or or not allowed it to compete in festivals? That's a that's something. As I was reading about sort of the history, because I know so little about Iranian 
Iranian cinema, I try to read up on it, and it's it's sort of a common a common compromise that a lot of Iranian filmmakers have made in order to be allowed by the state to to compete in foreign festivals. Yeah, uh, because that's sort of like the primary market for Iranian art house directors. So they made compromise. They try to avoid political topics a lot. So you think that's why there's no background to Mr. Badi that um, it's it helps. Um make him sort of a much more open character for people to to sort of uh or maybe a, a metaphor rather than a human being and avoids avoids tackling um politics or class uh, to to step back a bit so i when I took a literature class at university, my professor used to have a saying saying there's no right interpretations, but there's definitely wrong ones. <laughs> and I think any any interpretation about this film being about mental illness, in my opinion, is wrong. Although, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about that. But I think I think the film is meant to function purely as an allegory. Uh, maybe an allegory about life, maybe an allegory about, you know, in a, in a in a roundabout way about class, about religion, about a lot of things. I don't think it's meant. We're meant to be take to be sort of to try to extrapolate these as real characters. Maybe try to figure out uh, what what they are and why they're unhappy and sort of what, what it, their place in, the, in, in, in Iran specifically. I do think that we are meant to view everything as a metaphor, literally everything uh, that is in this film, including the, the collar, including the, the car, the like driving around a road is sort of a metaphor for life. The cherry is a metaphor for something, although <laughs> I'm not quite sure about what that metaphor is. Um, mm. So I would agree with you there. I think so. And, um, and I'm not, but I'm not, I'm not sure Wherein I'm, I'm fairly confident in my interpretation of it as an allegory. I, an allegory is sort of something that has piece of the puzzle that you piece them together and you kind of make make a, a whole picture. I'm not sure what sh- what each of the individual pieces are. Like there's sort of like the rule of three that you see in a lot of sort of like folklore and allegor and allegories and fairy tales, where you have he sees the first person that he sees is a young man, then the second person is a middle aged man, and the third person is an old man. So he goes through that sort of like that the circle of life, and then in the end, everything goes dark, right? Mm. And then sort of like cuts to a completely different perspective, like the perspective of the filmmaker, sort of as though it's almost as though you can almost interpret it as though it is he has died and now he sort of exists in a different plane of existence. Yeah, or maybe uh, there are reflections of different parts of his life. So he's less interested in what the younger men have to say because he's already gone past them at those points in his life. And uh, when it comes to the old man, uh, something that's ahead of him, he's able to sort of like uh, open up and uh, seeds of doubt about his scheme of committing suicide upon him. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's a famous review by Roger Ebert about this film where he kind of essentially panned the movie and called it boring. Yeah. Uh, and I don't agree with that. I thought the movie was very engaging right i don't know i don't know if you felt the same way yeah the constant forward movements and i felt like the actors um were really good at delivering their roles like that but curtis soldier who's young and um just uh naive and uh like he's scared out of his wits because he's been taken for a ride and he has no control over it and then you know, the seminarians like a bit of a theological debate and then you've got this older guy who's just a really entertaining narrator, essentially. And all the way through, you've got these great landscape shots. It's just really involving. And there's some symbolism in the landscape shots as well, where you see like and a lot uh, of Mr. repetition. B- a lot yeah, of repetition. Mr. And 
iterations that change. So you've got like, it's like an arid landscape. And then as he talks to the old man and he sees, hey, there's more to life than um, whatever problems ail me. And you see like uh, animals and you see people resting on the roadsides and you see like life, the place is teeming with life. And it's like you're constantly watching various iterations of this journey and how they evolve. And I think you can really engage with that and read into it what you will. Why do you think so? There's this nice, I don't know where the young soldier fits in what I'm about to say, but there's this sort of like interesting dichotomy between the second passenger and the third passenger. You can say, you can sort of fit them in sort of the debate of faith versus science because the second passenger is a seminarian. Uh, right. Which I'm not exactly sure what that means. It's like a, a, a student of religion or something, right? Yeah, he's going to be uh, going to a religious school, essentially. Like a, he's going to be a, a hodge or whatever it is that... Um, uh, imam. Uh, imam, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and but the, the third passenger, the old person, is a, is a man of science. You can, you can call him that, right? He, is a, he's works, he works at a natural history museum. Yeah, he does taxidermy, but he's wearing a white lab coat, so you can see that he's. You can assume that he studied something. Perhaps he's a doctor or professor. Yeah, yeah, he went to some kind of university. Yeah, that's right. So, what do you think? And and you, we can. Why do you think? Two questions. So, why do you think that he is the one that actually accepts his proposal? Is it just because he's the third one, and he? Eventually, had to have someone accept, or do you think there's some significant to what he represents that he accepted? You know, Badi's proposal, and do you think that the, that he also maybe casts doubt on Badi's plan because he goes back and says, "Please make sure that I'm dead." Right? He seems to be afraid. He seems to be excited, or you know, a little paranoid about he might be about the fact that he might be buried alive more so when the, than in the previous times when he stole uh, the story. So, do you think there's something about what the third man, the third passenger, represents that? Um, that kind of that kind of adds something extra to the story or the allegory. So, uh, like the first passenger is a soldier. He's uh, official. Them official. Them might not actually care. The second soldier is seminarian's religion and is prohibited to commit suicide. So he's in opposition to Mister Badi. Mister Badi will uh, uh, will essentially reject that opposition. And then the third man, the older man, the man of experience, the man of science, he's able to talk to Mr. Badi. He's able to relate his own experiences. And just by talking about suicide, not rejecting it, not ignoring it, but talking about it, allows him to plant seeds of doubt in Mr. Badi's mind. And Mr. Badi like, gets out of the car. He leaves the car behind and he races into the museum. And he's like, look, make sure... You, you go through with a plan, but you can see, like, throughout the journey when he's with the old man, and, like, the, pers uh, the perspective shows, uh, like, the wide angle shots show, like, animals and uh, beautiful parts of the landscape. A lot of crows. A lot of crows, yeah, but, um, like, people resting in orchards as well. It shows, like, there's, like, the seeds of doubt have been planted, like, there's more to live for, and, like, it's that moment of contemplation. After the sort of meeting at the museum, where Mister Badi looks at the city and he's like considering life, and I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a positive I'm an optimist guy I'm an optimistic guy, uh, so I saw that as him like changing his perspective because the the older wiser man was able to talk more broadly 
about suicide rather than just rejecting it. So do you think there's any part of the film, and this one was, I, I really struggled to figure this out, uh, because I don't think the film, again, like I said, I don't think this film is about mental illness. I just don't, don't think that's the case. You could, maybe someone could interpret that, it could give a valid interpretation, but I think this is an allegory. But do you think there's any part of the film that sort of affirms suicide, that says, you know, it is, it is something that people go through, and maybe most of the time is wrong. But sometimes, you know, some people are just so, so bad that, or, or uh, so in pain that is just, you know, it is, uh, it is, you know, you cannot, you cannot justify it with religion or even with, you know, someone else's experience. Um, there is this famous, I mean, this, one of the lines of the film that, that struck me the most was uh when the young i don't know if it's the second passenger or the young soldier where uh buddy says don't try to understand you cannot you can you can understand you can uh uh empathize you can understand objectively what it is but you don't know what it's like to be me yeah uh and that that and that's a very valid sort of that's a uh, sort of a philosophical argument that people have sort of like written about since from nietzsche all the way to the existentialist and one one particular essay that I remember reading when I was in university was uh, philosopher Thomas Nagel essay about what it is like to be a bat. And he is essentially saying he's making it's about consciousness and about what it is to sort of have to, to, to experience consciousness from a person from a first person perspective. I'm simplifying things, but it is impossible. Essentially, your first person perspective, it is uniquely yours and I can never possibly understand it. Right, it's it's like uniquely yours, and that's why we'll never know what it's like to be a bad because it's we we can study it biologically, we can do experiments to understand what it is and all that, but we'll never know what it's really like to be a bad. And I think that's kind of in in the spirit what Body is saying. So he's saying, don't you cannot possibly it's 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 literally impossible for you to sort of put yourself in my perspective. I, I think uh, the writers um, are canny enough, they're smart enough to know that. Um, that's he's the writer yeah like um you need to present that argument and then every other argument um count, like uh mr buddy uh encounters essentially counters that argument but the writers don't commit one way or the other to saying whether suicide is uh is um uh of good or bad they just leave it open to interpretation yeah yeah although i i don't know i I mean, yeah, I agree with you, but it's also I think the the particular choice of having things fade to black in the end and then cutting to a completely different perspective. I mean, it's a shock. It's really a shock. I was, I was, I thought, I thought there was something wrong with my YouTube feed. Uh, <laughs> like there's the quality went down all of a sudden because it changes dramatically. I, I I don't know. I took that as an implication that he actually the director actually suggesting that he did commit the suicide. I think it's uh, just like ending on an ambiguous note. Like I, I, I think so. Like, I mean, you it, might be right about that. Yeah, it doesn't confirm whether he takes the pills or not because it's a long shot of Mister Badi in his apartment, and um, that like a taxi arrives. I assume it's a taxi, and you can see him uh, moving around in the apartment, but it doesn't show him like uh, swallowing uh, any pills. Um, it's just him going to the grave, and then it's like the final shot of the stars and him looking at it and i think like the build-up being able to talk about suicide being able to um be drawn out from like that first person perspective where he's overwhelmed because like the old man says it's a matter of perspective 
like you right now everything seems dark but you just have to change your perspective yeah like and like the whole builder is like him acknowledging that there's a world around him that there could be something else going on and like the beauty of the world is revealed with the stars and maybe he doesn't commit suicide yeah and there's a couple of things that i think are not seen or specified uh, I don't think we ever get, uh, except for that final shot, I don't think we ever get a clear shot of the grave, do we? No, it must be deep because he says, uh, if I'm still alive, help pull me out of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe he is still, maybe like, I, I, I took that to be as the sleeping pills may work or may not work. Like, yeah. I never took that as, a, as an indication that he would not take the sleeping pills. It's just, he doesn't know there's a chance, maybe there's a 50-50 chance that the sleeping pills will kill, kill him. I'll just, you know, like put him to sleep for a long time, but he'll eventually wake up. I suppose you uh, could see it as like it, 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 whatever happens, it's God's will. Yeah, yeah, that's that's I, I that I, that's how I interpreted him thinking about it. But also, is it ever specified in the film that it's a sherry tree, except for the title? No, because I don't think like, it, I was waiting. There's for, a dialogue. Yeah, yeah, I was waiting for cherries to happen. It's like mulberries. We're talking about mulberries. What happened to the cherries? Yeah. He's, I mean, that's the description. When I read the description, it says it in the description. And the title is Taste of Cherry. And he, I think we do see a tree, but I guess maybe if you are savvy enough, you could recognize the cherry tree. I guess I'm not savvy enough to recognize it as a cherry tree. But what, what do you take the symbolism of the cherry? I mean, the cherry means different things in different cultures and different, you know, art, uh, different works of art. So what, what, I mean, did you take it as anything in particular? I uh, I didn't take it as anything in particular. No. Um. Did Do you have any ideas? Can be many things, and like I said, many cultures. One, like one thing about cherry is a very commonly used sort of like plant in literature for its symbolism because it means something very evocative in a lot of countries. Like I think there's a Bible story about it that I'm it's escaping me now. Uh, one thing in Japan, it's a very very prominent. Uh, cherry blossoms are sort of like the uh, often symbolize life. Uh, yeah, the the coming of life, but also symbolize innocence. There's a very uh, I don't know if you've seen Nagisa Oshima's final movie, Gohato. Yes, I have. Yes, Taboo, and that ends with Takeshi Kitano once he realizes that his apprentice, his students, has kind of kind of is manipulating other people to gain his way. He realizes that his apprentice has lost his innocence, and in this very surreal scene, he takes out his sword and chops down a cherry tree. And it's like it looks nonsensical, but it is meant to be a very obvious sign that that the student has lost his innocence because the cherry tree is cut down. Yeah. Uh, I don't know in this case. I don't know if in sort of Islamic culture in or in Islamic literature, the cherry has something. At first, I thought the taste of cherry was maybe something take out of the Quran. Uh, I didn't find anything to that effect. So I don't know. But maybe there is something Islamic related about the... Uh, in the Quran about the cherries, I don't know, but I, I don't think it makes sense to be taken as innocence. Maybe something about life, about the beginning of life. I don't know. About fragility of life, or fleetingness of life, would apply to this film, I suppose. That's possible. Or it could be a, just simple as another fruit for him to sort of like, uh, to eat and have a, a change of heart in the end. Uh, cherries do have strong flavor. Well, it depends on how ripe they are. Yeah. Un unripe cherries are maybe the very bitter. <laughs> Which means he committed suicide in this film. Yeah, yeah. That it depends on the time of year. I don't know enough about the uh well the climate is in in uh well because 
Japan and in Iran have very different climates. So the fact that cherries can grow in both places is, uh, is although maybe cherries grow everywhere because I think everywhere I've been have cherries. Mm. Um, there is another um, another thing that uh, that kind of that stands out in this film is that all three people are from different places. All three people that he kind of converses with are from different places. And it's not just in passing. They, it's kind of brought up intentionally, right? Yeah, so you get a Kurdish soldier, an Afghan seminarist, and a, a Zeri taxidermist. And it, I, it's really another interesting example how porous the borders of Middle Eastern countries are, but it's also like a history of conflict and suffering in these characters. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the relationship of these particular Afghanis and Iran. I mean, I think there was a war at some point between them. Uh, uh, and Kurds obviously have been in conflict. I mean, the Turkey for one thing with everyone pretty much. Iraq uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think there was an Iraqi, but there was a man from Afghanistan. There was uh, the last one where he was from. Where was uh, it from? Azeri, so Azerbaijan or Turkey? Some like that, yeah, yeah, like like a Turkish, uh, a, a variation of, of of Turkish ethnicity. But these are all people who've come from conflict zones. They've all experienced suffering, and it's kind of like Mister Badi, who I assume is Iranian. Um, he's um, uh, uh, you know, like maybe he hasn't experienced things like those characters have, like or people from those nations have. Yeah. And it yeah. helps broaden his perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also, I mean, Iran is a sort of a, a, a theocracy, right? I mean, there was the Iranian Revolution in the 70s, which yeah. uh, sort of placed the, the royal family installed by the British and Americans. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, with like, and women have, I mean, there's, that's another thing. I mean, women, there's virtually no women uh, in the film. I, I mean, I don't know if that's intentional or not. Or it's just, I mean, again, the, the film is an allegory. So I don't think. Uh, or at least I interpret it to be that way. So I don't necessarily uh, think the lack of women is meant to is meant to represent something. Although it may be possible. I mean, all all four men, so the main character Badi and the other three, are from cultures where women don't necessarily have. I don't know about the Kurds specifically. I'm not sure. Uh, I, yeah, it seems like Kurdish women um, take a bigger role in society because they're definitely Turkish um, Kurdish female fighters. Absolutely, yeah. So that may be the case. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that is meant to be taken as something, or is just, you know, there was just he didn't think about casting any women in particular. I think he just wanted to sort of maintain the simple structure of like three phases of a man's life, and Mister Badi sort of um, going through his sort of um, uh, journey of uh, whether to commit su uh, suicide or not. Yeah. Uh, another. So another another thing that um, Sir Roger Ebert brings up in his review is he. So what he brings up in his review is this uh, suggestion that uh, Buddy might be homosexual, uh, and I think that stems from his desire. Like I said, the, the film is an allegory, so you can't you can't interpret them as real characters. And I think he's trying to, so that's why he's looking for this. But I don't know if you saw that. If you saw sort of the hints for so for for like suggesting homosexuality on his behalf, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I, I can see how people would, uh, maybe get a hint of that because Mister Badi is essentially roaming around in a Range Rover, talking yeah, to guys, picking up men, picking up men, yeah. essentially, <laughs> and he does have that one hostile reaction with a laborer who's like, "I'll smash your face in." <laughs> 
so you know there there is that sort of connotation but um the filmmakers definitely aren't going for that you don't get much about his background other than he's got money yeah i mean it does it, it does sound like a pickup line right in in a country where homosexuality is is you know i don't know if it's illegal or very uh frowned upon that's i mean that's how you go around you kind of go around sneakily and offer people money yeah cruising essentially uh, yeah so so i mean it, there it is suggestive in many ways but i don't know if that is uh you know like it in jest or if it's meant to be taken significantly or it's just an accident i don't know i i don't think it was the filmmaker's intentions do you think the filmmakers were aware that that could be interpreted from the film because there is that one laborer who's like get away from me that's right yeah so that that's why i think there's too much of it to be an accident yeah but on the other hand, if it is not an accident, then I'm not sure how what to make of it because it's the, the film doesn't do anything with it. No, uh, unless again, unless it is another political statement about sort of like Iran in the '90s and maybe even still today. Again, it's down to like the viewer having to do the work of like interpreting what's going on. Yeah, I mean, if you must, if you're the kind of reviewer that you must insist of trying to sort of like understand. Uh, body's motivation. So, if you want to look at it beyond uh, allegorical means, th- beyond these allegorical interpretations, then that's I think that's a valid interpretation to give it, and that, a valid reason for his suicide. Yeah. Without having seen many of Kiarostami's films, or without having knowing that much about it, he has, from what I've read, he does seem to give the impression that he is more of a cosmopolitan director than perhaps his colleagues in his other colleagues in Iran. Uh, I mean, he did work all over the world, right? Yeah, uh, Europe and um, Japan. So it wouldn't be, I mean, that could be in his mind. So it's something that could be in his sort of like, in his thoughts while writing this film. And of course, if 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 it was, then he would have to conceal it in many, many layers of other meanings to in order to get away, uh, or to get past the censors. Well, by being ambiguous and not committing to anything, he's able to do it. Like, he's astute enough to leave it in there, but he doesn't commit to it, so. Okay, uh, so so the, the, to go back to something that I mentioned in the beginning, this won the Palme d'Or with the eel. How do you compare this with the eel? Because I find them, I find, I find a strange connection, having seen this more, far more recently and fewer times. I've seen the eel multiple times. Having seen them, having... With that in mind, I I found a sort of a strange connection with them. Oh, what connection did you find? I think both movies are ultimately about the human condition, mm. but approach them from two different sides. So there is like one coin, and one side, the philosophical, the abstract, is the taste of cherry, and the more social side of the human condition is the eel. I, I think neither film are particularly political. Uh, or at least on on the surface, are particularly they're both about sort of people's place. The taste of cherries, maybe per, a person's place through his own existence in in maybe in in spiritually and uh, philosophically, and the eel is a person's place in society. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Okay, which one do you like more? Uh, I because they're both doing different things. Um, taste of cherries. Uh... Uh, it's very minimalist, and I enjoyed sort of like winding through the landscapes and all the shots, uh, claustrophobic interiors of the car, and the sort of wide shots and the uh, exteriors. Just 
beautifully done. Uh, but I enjoyed having a wider cast of characters in the eel. And um, I found there's a lot more meat to chew on in terms of um, all the dramatic interactions going on. I prefer the eel, I suppose, when it comes down to it. Koji Yakusho is just a really magnificent performer. And um, the cast of characters around him and the actors portraying them just really compelling. Yeah, I mean, we should also point out that you have been covering Japanese cinema for a long time. So <laughs> you might not be, you might not be the most the most part impartial observer. Although yes. I mean, I can, I can, yeah, that, I think that's a valid, that's a valid answer. Well, Koji Yakusho is my favorite Japanese actor. So yeah. So there, there, there you go. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know which one I would pick. I think, I think in this hypothetical scenario where if I had to choose, I was in the palm door jury and I had to choose, I think I would struggle between these two. Um, I don't know what else. Well, I forget what else was competing and if I, how many of those I've seen. But I think I can see, I mean, this, I think they are both, like I said, they are both uh, dealing, they're both excellent films, in my opinion. They're both dealing with similar issues from different perspectives. So I can see, I can see struggling with this and I can sort of see, I, I am happy that both got to won, got to win the, the Palme d'Or for that year. And I appreciate, you know, The Eel is great as one of the be- better, one of my favorite Japanese films. Uh, Taste of Cherry, I, I, I appreciate that it, it is an experimental film deep down. It's deeply philosophical. It's an allegory. It's, it's, it's ambiguous. It, it gives you a lot to think about and discuss, but I also appreciate that it is 90 minutes. Uh, yeah. I can, I can see a director with a bigger ego, like sort of not taking the minimalist route and sort of like to dragging on with debates and, and philosophical arguments with the characters for a lot and imagery for a lot longer than 90 minutes. Uh, and I appreciate Karastami just getting to the point and, and saying, okay, this is the metaphor that I'm using, the car, the road, the crows, the landscape, the three men, that, the three passengers, and there's no need to drag it on. They'll just, we'll just keep it to the point. Yeah. And I really appreciate that, whereas I think the eel is more of a conventional drama. And I think there's a lot of metaphor in the eel as well. The eel itself, we talked about that. What does the eel symbolize? Uh, the 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 color red that sort of jumps on the screen as he uh, murders his wife at the beginning, but it is a more I think conventional drama. Oh yes, yeah. packed full of like uh, scenes of folly and um, drama, melodrama. Yes, but I think both are excellent film. And if we if we doing our question about whether or not the, the Taste of Cherry deserve its award and recognition, I would say yes. Uh, what what about you? Yeah, I always have no problem saying, uh, deciding, like, oh, both films deserve something. They're both really good films. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> Debate over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what, is there anything else that uh, you feel we didn't discuss about the, the Taste of Cherry? One thing that kind of popped to my mind as, well as I was watching is the lack of soundtrack. I think, I think the movie would have been ruined with the soundtrack for some reason, and I can think it could have easily, another director could have easily added some kind of soundtrack, some kind of melodramatic soundtrack. But I think that takes away from sort of like the philosophical undertones that the film is trying to convey. Well, you have diegetic music that um, comes in and out as he passes by different people. Uh, But it's like the sound of like tires crunching on the road and like the voices of the characters really uh, becomes enrapturing. Yeah. And the him... Actually, him sitting on that construction zone with all the dust, thinking about stuff, right? Yeah, like that's a really great. It's silent uh, up until the end, 
Um, and there's a lot of shadow play um, and metaphor because, like, one of the lines is, oh, we, we come from dust and we go back to dust. And then you see him in the construction site. And the lead actor, whose name is um, Homayon Ershadi, like, he's magnificent. He just looks like a man so defeated by uh, his situation in that scene. Yeah, I mean, he's had a great career and he's, you know, he's acted in many Western films as well. Hmm. Uh, He's and I, I knew as soon as I saw him, I knew I recognized him. I mean, he's I, he hasn't had anything major in the West. He's mostly secondary characters, but he he appears in a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah. And I think I mean, of course, while I was watching this, the eel was on my mind for obvious reasons. But the his that scene where he kind of stares at the dust and is kind of sort of enveloped by it. I mean, I, I it reminded me a lot of you know uh, the main character of the eel sort of staring at the eel. Or the the sort of shots of the eels in the river, or him in the river, sort of meditating and, and contemplating about stuff. Yeah, you would also get the sort of like uh, shots of the character superimposed on their um, well um, in the eel tank itself. Yeah, exactly. But there's um, there was this period. I mean, we we had a whole season about the '90s, and we talked a lot about the reasons uh, why the '90s are important and maybe different. But there was this period a bit after the the cold war but before 9/11 where there was a, a lot of films a lot of cinema sort of was meditative and contemplative and uh, philosophical to a certain degree with 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 fewer politics much less political and this is where you know like the postmodernists like Tarantino sort of like thrived and i think this film could maybe be a product of it like that sort of a product of that trend for maybe slightly different reasons, but I think can be sort of fits the 90s very well. Yeah, it's an individual's journey. Uh, the only hints of politics come from the characters he meets along the way, and those are like historical conflicts as well. There's no mention of like sanctions on Iran or conflicts. Yeah, I, I can't think that America. in 97 there, there was any war. I can think the, the, the first um, the first Iraq war had ended by the time, right? Yeah. And it was, it was early like 90s. A, a devastating war for the Iranians because the Iraqis used poison gas. Yeah, exactly. And I can't think, I mean, that at that time, I think the main thing that I remember was in Kosovo, mm. sort of like I, the Balkans. I think, yeah, this would be really interesting to have like an Iranian person who could come on and say, oh, actually, there was this, this, and this going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, no. I mean, if someone if someone knows more, and of course, we could have looked all this up, but... Uh, there's only so much time in the day. Mm, um, yeah, from a Western perspective, it was as you said, like the Balkans conflict. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And we 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 made it clear that this is we we are by no means experts in either Iranian history or Iranian cinema. So that is that is the perspective that we sort of kind of take when when uh, talking about this film. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Did you look up how much two hundred thousand? Um. Uh, uh. What's the currency? Is it Toma? Uh. Would be in American dollars. It doesn't seem like it would be much due to sanctions and so forth. It all depends on sort of like the, the state of the economy, right? I mean, for a laborer, I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah. It says, I just looked, uh, I don't know if it riles the, the currency. Yeah, that's the currency today. It says today that would be about five bucks. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, I looked earlier, $4.72. But that's when something, I, did- I mean, it can be the same. When when I did a Google search, it was like, uh, how much is 200,000 Toman in US dollars? And then Google auto-completed it 
1997. So other people have looked. Yeah, that that doesn't sound right. I think so. One oh, okay, but one Toman. So that talk about Toman is about ten ten uh, ten riles. So it'd be two million riles. So that would be maybe forty bucks. I don't know. Yes, yeah, so- sounds. But I I don't know. It, it depends because it could be for different. For I mean, all you have to do is just go, but uh, go to uh, throw some dirt on a grave, which is you know not bad. But he does say at some point that this is going to be six months' wages. Yeah, you don't have to work this summer. He says the seminary. Exactly. Yeah. So it is. It is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. That's. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what <laughs> what to say to that. Hmm. It's uh, there's probably something we're missing there, either either in translation, something lost in translation, or maybe something that's changed in the sort of like the Iranian monetary systems that that we're not getting. Mm. But I don't know. I mean, it's not something that I think it's just meant to be. It's a large amount of money, and I think that's. I don't think that's that's really that's why I didn't bother. I don't think it really tells you anything about. Yeah. Uh, about the story, it's just it's just a number. He could have said anything there, and. The the size he, he makes it sound like a lot of money, and that's really all that matters, I think, in that scene. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, so anything else about this film that we haven't discussed? Uh, yeah, I think we've covered quite a bit. Then <laughs> it's gone quite quite quickly as well. Yeah, yeah. All right, everyone. Uh, that is it for our discussion of uh, Abbas Kiarostami's Taste of Cherry. Uh, we haven't quite decided what we'll do for next episode. It, like I said in the introduction, it might be either a special episode of the New York Asian Film Festival, depending on how certain things go. If not that, then we might uh, continue our coverage of uh, of uh, our season's theme with major award uh, winners. And in that case, it will be Johnny Toe's The Mission from 1999. Uh, all right, Jason, anything anything you'd like to plug before we end the episode? Yeah, uh, keep visiting uh, Heroic Purgatory and uh, 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 read our respective writings on vCinema and my blog. And uh, thank you all for listening and uh, thank you for the conversation, John. All right. Thank you too, Jason. All right. So that's it for our episode. Uh, if you have any questions, comments or concern, please go to heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com. Or visit us on Twitter at uh, Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time.